Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Mark 13, starting with verse 24. And we've covered two exhaustive sermons on the Olivet Discourse. And it's a portion of scripture where Jesus gets his disciples together and he tells them about end times. Eschatology, it's a big word. It just means what's going to happen in the future. And there's a reason for that. We're going to talk about that. Uh, today we're going to really go into the third out of four sermons with the second coming. All right, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now... We have kind of t turned the church over the last two, this will be the third Sunday, into a Bible college class because this is stuff that people learn in theology class. So if you're new to the church, you might find it fascinating, but we are going to go back to, after today, we're going to go back to the rest of the gospel and go back to sermon mode, more, make more applications. But this is really some things that we really should know, we need to know that Jesus taught for a reason. He taught it to his, his disciples and by extension he taught it to us. Okay, but why do we need to know it? Well, because there's, when we look at this and we see the implications of this, it really kind of tells us how we need to live knowing this. You know, he could have just had this private conversation and uh, said, you know, just keep it to yourselves, but it was written down in the Gospels for a reason. So this is, this is what we're looking at. For those of you that, are, that really know the Scripture and mature in your faith, this is red meat for you to chew on. For those of you that might be new to the faith, you might still have some questions after this. I'm going to answer a lot of questions within the sermon because I did get some feedback, really good feedback, and some of them were in the form of questions. But if you are new to the faith, this, if, if anything else, it'll kind of blow your mind or pique your interest and realize it's not just a simple faith that they have. There's, there's a lot of nuts and bolts to the faith. All right, if we could go to the first slide, the 70th week of Daniel. Again, where are we in human history? Right around here there will come a point where the Lord will call his saints home, known as the harpazo in the Greek, or the rapture, which is a transliteration of the Latin word. And basically what happens is when the Lord calls us home, we'll be up here. This will be the first time that human beings will have two paths in life. Now again, we learned in, in mathematics in grade school that we live in linear time. So it goes you know, from left to right, and the left is the past and the right is the future. Uh, but when, we, when this event happens where the Lord calls his saints home, what happens is believers will actually be spending some time with the Lord in the kingdom or in heaven while the rest of the earth goes through the tribulation. So again, where are we? We're here, and we're real close to here. And what we're going to be talking about today is what happens here, the Lord's second coming. Okay, we'll check that out. We're going to go into Revelation. A lot of people have a lot of questions about the book of Revelation. Hopefully we make it clear to you this morning. So, in context, um, let me just go back to, we really left off with the Antichrist. We talked a lot about what he's going to be. And basically he's just going to be a, a, a person who's pretty much sold his soul to the devil for political power, for authority, for, you know, living it up on this world. Um, but we talked about the different mannerisms and what he would be like. I just want to end off with one more thing regarding this coming Antichrist, who actually might even be alive today. He might be an up-and-coming, upstart politician, and, uh, you know, he's 
He's, he's not moving fast enough up, up the chain. So he, Satan, is more than happy to help anybody to get what they want in this world as long as they, you know, he works for them and he can pull them away from God. But again, it's a choice that we make who we're going to follow. So if I can jump to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. And you might have some questions, but I, I'm hoping by the end of the sermon, a lot of your questions, a lot of the blanks will be filled in. 13.11. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of exegesis regarding Revelation. Not a lot, because we covered this extensively when we did the book of Revelation. You can get that for free off the website. It says, The beast out of the earth. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. This is the false prophet. This is the ecumenical leader in our future that's going to bring all the religions together, water down the truth, water down the gospel, just for the sake of everybody having a kumbaya moment, so to speak. Um, and then he's going to get them to, he's going to sway them to go under the Antichrist and to really worship him. It says, he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast, which is the Antichrist, whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that even... He even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. Telling those on the earth who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast. Now this is important. The word in Greek is icon. Where we get the word icon from It's just spelled differently. This image to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. So this guy goes through some maybe assassination attempt. He's... He's wounded, it seems like it's mortal, and it's really a mock resurrection. Everything Satan does is a cheap copy of what God does. Jesus rose from the dead, well, this guy's got to supposedly rise from the dead. So he gets this, this wound, and he's, he's healed from it, and people really worship him as their Messiah. He was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast. So there's this image, it's not really real, but there's power to give breath or some type of life or, or a picture or an idea of life, uh, an illusion of life to the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast, or the number of his name. I, I showed you the article of Motorola's um, pretty, pretty much tattoo skin that has uh, transceivers in it that you could use your cell phone, and your body picks up the cell phone as a Bluetooth. You can actually speak. The phone's over here. You're doing it through this, this technology. And it's available today, by the way. And I think it's going to get to the point where it's gonna, so much is going to be in there that you won't even need the cell phone anymore. You could just tap your head and pick up the phone or, or think something and text it to a friend. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. Um, erase, delete, I don't know, but the technology's here. I, you know, I just love it. 50, 60, 70 years ago, how Christians were made fun of until technology caught up with the Scripture. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, for his number is 666. So there's this, this image, this fake icon that it, it seems to be alive and what I want to do is I'm going to roll a clip for you this is the 2014 um, Billboard's Music Awards we talked about holography holograms how cheesy they were in the beginning they were they made toys out of them 
holography has, in, has been so developed that somebody who's not alive anymore can be brought to life with this image. Now, I want you to watch as we watch this clip. Watch the crowd, watch the tears, watch the cell phones, watch the screams, the cheers. They're cheering for a hologram that doesn't exist, but it's the image of Michael Jackson. Now, check it out. What's really amazing is watch when he, he's, he's not real, obviously, he's passed away. There's 16 live dancers, and you see him pass in front of the dancers where his body blocks them. Really creepy. How He doesn't have a body, but it, this is the, the technology. So as we roll it, I might point to some things. With my, I just love this green laser thingy here. Uh, but, so with, let's play about 40 seconds of it and check it out. Right? you believe that? He's sitting in the chair. He's blocking the chair. He's not there. By the way, how do you know I'm really here? <laughs> how do you know I'm not going to walk through that door any second? This is how the technology is freaky. It's creepy. We live in the age of illusion. I've said this many times from the pulpit. Now let's talk a little bit more. Pandora's box has already been opened with technology. They're already... I know they say stuff on the news and politicians in Congress, they're all full of it, okay? Basically, they're doing gene splicing. They're splicing animal and human DNA to make superhumans. They're creating cyborgs in back laboratories. You know, the Motorola is just the tip of the iceberg. They're putting, implanting um, computers into people and there's willing participants for this. You know, um, cloning, it's all happening. It's all happening. So, I mean, you, you just, you go on TV and you look in Facebook, you don't even know what's real anymore. That Syrian boy who saved a little girl under heavy gunfire, it turned out it was a set. They staged it, they filmed it, and then he put it and people picked it up. Um, countries are at war, they're putting live people, laying them down with fake blood and makeup, taking pictures, saying, oh, they blew up a, an apartment complex found out to be a hoax because it's the same people in the pictures that other people are using in their countries. Wait a minute, that person looks familiar, you know, those three people. Um, AP photography, uh, photographs of explosions are doctored and photoshopped. They got busted. They made explosions look a lot bigger than they were through some tricky photography. And let me just say this, women are doing this too, are getting addicted to pornography as men are. And the people you see on the pages are not real. If you bumped into them on the street, you'd never recognize them. And what happens is, let me just say this to young men, when you start getting involved in that stuff, you can never have a meaning relationship with a woman. Because your, your, your patterns in the brain and the physiology changes and you have this standard that nobody can meet. As a matter of fact, Ted Bundy, the serial killer, who was a sexual deviant, they found him with all this pornography. That's the little, the dirty secret with a lot of these criminal... Um, these, these serial killers and stuff, they get involved in this world that's a world of illusion and fantasy. And then they fill, fulfill these things out uh, in the real world, and they're just so seared, their minds and their brains. Um, what's real anymore? This is what's real. This has stood the test of time for thousands of years. This is God's Word.
What are we chasing after in this world, brothers and sisters? What are we going after that's in the world? Okay? Solomon had more wealth. He had more land. He had more war, weapons of war. You could say George Soros, Donald Trump, they were a pittance. They had pennies compared to what King Solomon had. And at the end of his life, he said it was, I just kept chasing after the wind. He had women, he had wine, he had gold. And at the end of his life, he just kept speaking about it as if he was chasing after the wind. It was a depressing book, Ecclesiastes, because without God, it all means nothing. This world is an illusion. So that's where I want to start us off before we jump into this. Um, I really get into it. Verse, uh, chapter 13, verse 24. So this is the end of the tribulation, this horrible, horrific seven-year period, and how the Lord returns at the end of that period. It says, but in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars of heaven will fall and the powers in heaven will be shaken, for they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest part of the earth to the farthest part of heaven. And Jesus said this to the religious leaders when they arrested him and he said he was the Messiah and then they said, crucify him, what more do we need? He said, from here on in you will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. Now it's funny because the um, resurrection happened before that, but he didn't reveal himself to them. They were, their hearts were too hard. He's speaking about them and by extension the religious leaders um, down the ages that were keeping the Jewish people in the dark by not teaching them about who the true Messiah was. And there will be a future group that do see, you know, in Israel they will see this. The Bible says in Zechariah, it's impressive, Zechariah 12, 9 through 14, Old Testament prophet, that Israel will have a national repentance and acceptance. They will see the one that they've pierced and they will mourn. But it'll be a good thing because they'll turn to him, right? Um, Zechariah 14 speaks about the second coming. He lands on the Mount of Olives and he splits it. Um, it's, you know, the battle of Armageddon, all these things start to happen. But it's very clear because a lot of false messiahs have come. You know, I've, I, some people have sent me videos, some guy in Central America, he's like, oh, I'm the messiah. You know, everybody, all these guys are like, really, where's the cataclysm? You know, where's the sky? You know, where's the opening of the heaven like a scroll? It's not there. Jesus was very specific that the cataclysmic events would precede the Lord's parousia, or his arriving, his coming. Verse 24 says, The sun shall be darkened, the moon won't give its light, and verse 25, The stars of heaven will fall, and the powers of heaven will be shaken, and the Son of Man will come or appear in great power and glory. What can we take from this? Number one, there will be no competition with Christ. No competition. Right? There's no competition with the light of Christ. So everything is going to kind of be dimmed when he takes center stage. The world will, will be awed by his appearing. Verse 21, or Revelation 21, 23, you don't have to turn to that, but it's one verse, and it says this, in this new kingdom, in this new dispensation that we're going to be in, after this, you know, the Lord rules and, and all these dictators and stuff will be put down and be no more poverty, no, none of that stuff anymore, in the Lord's kingdom, it says this, that the city, in verse 23 in Revelation chapter 21, the city had no need of the sun or the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it and the Lamb its light. 
So God Christ himself will be the illumination. We won't need CFLs. We won't need LEDs. You know, they have all these new fancy lights. The light of God will illuminate, you know, the whole city, which is really impressive. As a matter of fact, when we covered the transfiguration, the disciples got a little taste of the light of God or the light of Christ when he went up to the mountain with them and his deity shone through his skin. And it was so bright that it actually woke them up. You, know, you ever sleeping and, and um, I don't know, you work shift work and somebody opens up the blinds? They don't even have to make any noise, but the light pierces through your eyelids. It's just a, a thin layer of skin. The disciples were woken up by the, the glory of Jesus Christ. That's a good, that was a message I really enjoyed teaching. And the Bible is amazing because it, it agrees with itself in even the most obscure passages in a verse here or there. It's, it's just an agreement. In addition, remember... For those of you who are new, because we always have, always have new people, you turn the pages of the Bible, book to book, you go 100 years back, 1,000 years forward, different languages, different cultures, different people, didn't even know each other, different geographies. Oh, you know, the Bible is made up by men. Really? The Bible? Okay, let's talk about the scrolls and the parchments and the engravings that actually made up the Bible that only in the last um, 500 years did we put it on paper and make books out of it. So it's, it's just important that we understand it. The second thing is that the Antichrist and the false prophet will have so deceived the earth by this point that what, when Jesus comes in his second coming, no one's going to say, well, um, well, it's pretty spectacular, but I'm not sure. It's going to be obvious. It has to break through all the deceit that people have been brainwashed for the seven years of the tribulation. Here's another interpretation, and I, I like both of them, and it could be at the same time, it could be parallel, that the stars falling and the heavens shaking could be the further casting down of the demonic beings. Now let me just talk about progressive judgment here with the angels. Jesus said in Luke 10, I saw Satan fall like lightning to the earth. It was like in a, in a split second. When the angels sinned and they rebelled against God, God cast them down. He cast them out of his presence. So that was the first stage in progressive discipline. This is amazing. The Bible is so thoughtful. When you start putting all these things together in the puzzle pieces, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm in awe of teaching it. I love it. It's just so amazing. I mean, people say, oh, that was a good message, Pastor Joe. It wasn't me. This, look at the material I'm using. I really don't use much of my own stuff here. So the, so the angels are cast out of heaven, but they still have to give an account to God. Remember the book of Job. Now let's go back a few thousand years. That, that God has uh, the, the angels come before him and give an account. So saying, what have you been doing on the earth? Well, I've been walking to and fro. Hey, have you considered my servant Job? So they go from out of God's presence, they can only come into his presence when they have to give an account, but they're really banished to the earth, which man sold to Satan or gave to him because we as a, as a people have rebelled against God. So unfortunately, we're stuck with him here. He's a real pain in the butt a lot of times. The third step in progressive discipline is that eventually the angels, uh, the rebellious angels, the demons, will be judged in the lake of fire, which burns forever and ever. Jesus spoke about that, right? He said, you know, that... Uh, those that rebelled against God would be cast into the lake of fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was never prepared for people. It was prepared for the, the, the demons who rebelled against God. Right, so this, you see this progressive discipline here. Verse 27. There's going to be, again, this regathering of Israel to witness her Messiah. Again, it's so funny because not a Christian contrivance. This is back in the Old Testament. It's as Old Testament as it comes, right? Zechariah 12, which I covered and coming down to touch down on the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. Now, to my knowledge, in the last 2,000, 3,000 years, that's never happened. And then the, the mountain is going to split and make a valley. Remember, Old Testament book, not Christian stuff. 
But you put it all together and it makes sense. I've been asked the question as part of this uh, whole teaching is, does anybody get saved during the tribulation? Unfortunately, you, you talk to a lot of different people, they just kind of throw out flippant answers that aren't thought through. In Revelation 6, the fifth seal is open, and John, the disciple, sees the souls under the altar, and they're crying. Now, this is in heaven. They're crying out to God, How long, Lord? How long will our blood be avenged by those on the earth? So guess what? They are saved through the tribulation. However, check this out. Well, how do you know that's the tribulation? Because what do they say? Avenge us. Now, they're in heaven. What do Christians say now? Forgive them. They're saying, avenge us. Avenge our blood on them. Now, this is where we cross dispensations. This is Bible college kind of speak here. Dispensations. You know, God deals with the nation of Israel, his covenant, covenant with his people. That's a dispensation. When the church age happened, it's the age of grace. Quite frankly, when people wrong us, especially unbelievers, we're supposed to really find it at some point in our heart to forgive them. And hopefully they get saved. However, these guys in heaven are saying, avenge us, our blood, on those that are still on the earth. And he says, just a little while longer, because the second coming has to happen. So the answer, short answer, after all that, is that yes, people do get saved during the tribulation. Now if you're thinking, well, <laughs> even if I don't you know, come to Christ now, um, there's still hope for me later on, even in the tribulation, when it's really made clear to me. Trust me, you want to take the first bus. <laughs> Nobody. I don't want to go through that. I want to be on the first bus. I trust Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I'm going. First, first elevator up, I'm, I'm there. Let's just take all Gospels into account, too. And I do this to get a, a mental mindset here. Matthew 24, 30 adds, okay? It's subtle. That all the tribes of the earth will mourn upon his arrival. Again, that's this national repentance from really Israel. Luke 21, 26 adds, quote, Men's hearts will fail them from fear and the expectation of the things coming on the earth. If Jesus Christ came back today, people would react differently. There are some that don't want to be under his thumb. In uh, Luke 19, the parable of the Minas, right? The subject said about, this was about the Lord, we will not have this king rule over us. Guess what? He's your king. He will rule over you. He made us. He made the world. He made the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He does have some, some rights to us and to this earth. And I got no problem with that. And he's still merciful enough to allow us to reject him for a time. People go their own way. A lot of people don't want God today. But that's going to change. The age of grace is going to run out. Let me read to you Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Just to get an understanding of where we will all be, every person on the earth who's, who's been passed away, who's, who's now, who will live, live further after this. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. 2, 8 through 11 says, And being found in appearance as a man, of course Jesus took the form of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, so that we could have life, by the way. He didn't die for no reason. They didn't overpower him. He could have taken them. He did a lot of miracles. But he knew he had to go to the cross so that we could have life, that our sins would be forgiven. Verse 9, therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, so that the, the name of Jesus, or Yeshua, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on the earth and those under the earth. Fascinating. I, I did teach this, but I'm not going to go deep into that. 
and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is, this is where it comes down to when it comes to us and Jesus. Every single person will come to front and center with the cross. And we will either worship him out of adoration. If you're a believer now, you, you worship him because you love him. If Jesus appeared right now, I'd go down to my knee. Not a problem. I, I owe everything that I have and everything that I am to him. I understand that. Or we can take the knee out of obligation. Well, I'll never bend my knee. Oh, trust me, you will. You will. But it's better to do it this way first. Adoration, because later it's going to be done out of obligation. Right? Again, take the first bus. <laughs> For those of you that, and let me just throw this in here as a parenthetical note. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, there's this magnificent battle that uh, includes pretty much Almost every, he thought World War I and II, they took sides and everybody jumped in, even these obscure countries. This battle that's spoken of has not happened yet because the nations haven't lined up in a certain fashion. So Ezekiel 38, 39 was written roughly 3,000 years ago. So it's yet to happen. Now, for those of you who are Bible students, I'm not getting dogmatic of where the battle is. Revelation speaks of a, a few different battles. I have my idea. I really don't want to inject that into this now. I don't think it's that important that I say what I'm pretty sure that I think it is. But I will tell you this, that every country mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39 has not happened in 3,000 years. Today as we speak, and especially since the last few years in North Africa, is either embroiled in a civil war, has had a coup, a bloody coup, they're fighting a war with their neighbors, or if they've had a radical turnover in leadership, or they're amassing allies and are saying verbally that they're gearing up for the big one, my paraphrase. These are, the, these are the nations, Israel. Israel's one. Russia, she's another one. Let me tell you something. Vladimir Putin's approval rating is up in the 80s. They love him. He's very Russian nationalistic. Whatever he does, they're going to be fine with. So Russia is itching to expand her, herself. She said it. Um, Iran, which was the old Persian kingdom, Right? Read the news. <laughs> Just put it in a, right, it's true. Put it in a search engine. You'll see this stuff start to come up. The Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia is like, so United States, what are you doing? We're getting a little scared over here with what's going on, right? Think about the Sunni Shia you know, clashes, how the, the, even the Muslim world is taking sides based on who's a Sunni and who's a Shia. Um, North Africa, thanks to us in the last few years, North Africa has changed into radical leadership and is moving and poising herself against Israel. Now, here's the funny thing. You know what also happened recently was Egypt. Egypt, you know, know your geography. She's also in North Africa. Egypt has decided now to make friends under the new leadership with Israel, and she's helping Israel take out all the Hamas tunnels. This is unprecedented, brothers and sisters. Israel, or Egypt tolerated Israel for a long time. Now, Egypt, there's a lot of secret stuff going on, too. I talked to my friends who were over there and you know, they, they kind of in the know and stuff. There's some interesting things going on in this world. So if I had a, a map of the Middle East or of the world, you would see, I would show you all the, all the lighting up of all the countries that Ezekiel 38 and 39 speaks about. United States, where are we? We're nowhere. We're either completely weakened or the rapture has come and so many Christians are pulled out in key positions that we're just become isolationists. 
The Western, Western world is impotent. It's not involved in this. It's so funny. Even Christians have this americentric view. Oh, the United States, United States. Let me tell you something. When it comes to end-time prophecy, we're nothing when it comes to that. Just saying. Now, I want to give you a frame of reference so that when I put all this together, you, you know where I'm coming from. If you would, turn with me to Revelation 19, starting with verse 1. I don't want to read seven chapters here, so let me just give you a little context. Babylon the Great is destroyed. The earth mourns Babylon's destruction. In my Revelation study, I talked about Babylon. Heaven rejoices over Babylon's destruction, although the world is mourning it, because everybody was making money and having a good time. But it was demonic. It was evil. God finally says, that's it. God is very gracious. But you know what? His justice has to come out at some point. He gives us so much time. He's so merciful. Eventually, he has to mete out justice. But he does give a very long rope, if you will, to, uh, before it gets to that point. Revelation 19.1. Isn't this stuff interesting? <laughs> I, could te- I just love this stuff. It's just amazing. After these things I heard. Now, this is the disciple John. The angel's kind of giving him a tour of future events. I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. This is spiritual. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. And they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rises up forever and ever, meaning Babylon. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. Now this is, this imagery started in the Old Testament as God, you know, the Father and his covenant with Israel, his wife, so to speak, in a spiritual sense. When Christ came and he redeemed the church, it's the same type of relationship. So when you hear about the, the bride of Christ, it's really the Christians collectively. Because he, you know, in a romantic, spiritual way, he died so that the, the wife could be redeemed. He died for my sins and yours. Right? So the marriage of the Lamb, so there's this great feast that happens in heaven while... The tribulation's going on. Because in, in Revelation 4, the, John, and he opens the door, and, and you see these things happening. The church has been, has been raptured. Where was I? Um, <laughs> okay, let us be glad and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now this is a, a, a parenthetical statement, a side note. And this is John speaking. I fell at his feet, the angel, to worship him. He gets so... Could, could you imagine seeing all this stuff? You, you know, you're taken to a tour to heaven and you see all these things. John is just, you know, we're human beings. He's got sensory overload. He just falls down at the ground and he goes to worship the angel. He's not thinking. And this is what the angel says. Can angels receive worship? No. 
<laughs> was Jesus an angel? No. Just there's some cults out there that teach that. I fell at his feet to worship him, but he, the angel, said to me, See that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren. Like, get up before God sees this. <laughs> this is not good. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't tell him to do that. Get up, John. <laughs> so, I am your fellow servant and, your, and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Okay, here's the second coming of Christ. Then I saw heaven opened. This is the second time the disciple John sees heaven opened. I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, for he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So the Lord has to come back to the earth after the seven-year tribulation period. He's got to deal with all the evil, all the dictators, all the people that are always making war. You know, he's got to, he's got to deal with it. You know what I love about this is God spoke creation, right, into, into existence through his words. Jesus has a sword that goes out of his mouth and he smites the nations. He doesn't even have to lift his hand or draw something. It's, you know, you see this, the Old Testament, New Testament, how they're totally in parallel with each other. They're totally in sync. So he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is, I'm just going to go through a little bit of this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, the Antichrist and his armies, right? He's the big warmonger. Gathered together to make war against him, believe it or not, against Jesus, who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeds from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and, on, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now this is where the millennial kingdom is set up. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were fulfilled, finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, if you understand the scripture, he kept saying, then I saw, then I saw. So what happens is, John is receiving this revelation in chronological order. He's not, they're not trying to confuse him because he wants John to write this so that we can understand it. So these things are happening in order. Boom, boom, boom. Now let me go to... Um, well, let's just go to the... Uh, I always lose that laser pointer. Let's go to the um, timeline again. Some of you, your eyes are rolling back into your head. <laughs> so, so what happens is, again, we go up, right? The marriage supper of the Lamb. 
Revelation 19, the door of heaven opens. The Lord comes with the armies of heaven, goes back to the earth. And that's happening at the same time that this, revela- or this, seventh, this seven-year period is going on. So here's the earth going through all this stuff, willingly, you know, they liked what the Antichrist had to say. They liked to throw off the restraints of your religion and your spirituality. So this is what's going on down here. All this, all this tribulation, Christians get raptured, then come back down, and then the Lord, what he does is he establishes this thousand-year period, also known as the millennium. Please bear with me for a few moments if you're not, if this stuff is, is, is heady. Millennialism. Just, I'm going to go through a few of these, and then I'm going to, I'm going to close it up. Millennialism is the understanding of the book of Revelation and the scripture of what happens in this thousand-year period. I know a few um, theology students in here who are going to enjoy this next five minutes. Millennialism. Premillennial dispensationalists, which I think make the most sense, means that Christ returns to earth at his second coming, which I just read, then it establishes his millennial kingdom that he rules. There are other, other ideas out there that you might run into. One is post-millennialism. This means that Christ returns after the thousand-year period, the millennium. And we don't know we're in the millennium unless one day we see kind of Jesus um, say, hey, guys, we're in the millennium, and we look back and go, wow, that was an interesting thousand years. We don't know. So post-millennium is, is, is odd because if Satan is bound and can't deceive the nations and we're in the millennium, then God's weak. Satan's not deceiving anybody today. <laughs> go home and pick, or pick up the paper or go on you know, one of your internet news sources and see what's going on in the world or your own state. You don't have to go far to find evil in this world. So if this is the millennial kingdom, this is pretty bad. Christ is ruling. Don't look good from here, I've got to tell you that. I don't, I don't think post-millennialism fits. Amillennialists, now there's different strains of amillennialism, which some of them, they don't believe in the millennium at all. Um, some think it's symbolic. Some think it's a nice allegory. Preterism means that when you read Revelation and prophecy, Daniel, Revelation, that uh, these things were fulfilled in the time that the writer wrote it in. There's some outlandish, fantastic, cataclysmic things that are written that could not have been fulfilled in the first century. But a preterist, they kind of killed prophecy. You know, they don't want to open their mind to what God is showing them in future events. Um, so that's preterism. And it, I got to tell you, you can't make these prophecies and these prophetic books fit in the first century. They just don't. They can't. Other doctrines tried to, tied to millennialism is, number one, reconstruction and dominionism, which means that, and they believe this, that Christians will transform the earth, and this is big in the political realm, that largely Christians will take a political office, change the laws, um, transform the earth, and it's going to be palatable so the Lord can come in and actually reign for a thousand years. That makes the Lord dependent on us. Again, it makes God a weak God. And I can tell you, it's not looking good from here. <laughs> I don't know about you, but it doesn't look good. Social gospel fits in well here. Um, the church becomes the hero, dominates the world. Not what we read in Thessalonians about the great apostasy. Not what we read about the trends in the last 20 and 30 years about the watering down of Christianity. So I don't know how Christianity is going to take over the world. Replacement theology, again, I've gone through this many a times. Fits with preterism. 
Um, Israel had her day. God's done with her. All those prophecies about Israel and our future, we become the new Israel as the church. We just kind of push her aside and put her in a closet somewhere, and we as the church become the new Israel. We fulfill those prophecies. Now, when you talk about Israel and you talk about Jacob, now we're going to start changing our names. I don't believe that either. You, everybody good? <laughs> okay. The last part, and then we're going to wrap it up. The rapture or the harpazo. That's that part where I showed you where the Lord calls his saints home. Let me tell you where that comes from. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. We'll put it up in case you're not sure where it is. Now this could be at any time in our future. Basically, the Apostle Paul is speaking to the Thessalonian church in the first century. They were confused, as many today are confused about end times prophecy. So the Apostle Paul makes them feel better, and he explains to them the order of events that are going to take place. Verse 13, he says, I do not want you to be ignorant. What does this show us? God doesn't want us to be ignorant. When somebody says, well, tell me about your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? I just believe. It just feels good. No, there's got to be some substance to it. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, which is a euphemism for brothers and sisters in the faith that have died. He says, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. This is what gives us hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, miraculous, even so God will bring him with those who sleep or have died in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's actually an order to this. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Harpazo is the word in Greek. Rapture is the uh, Latin transliteration. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Catch, Catch this, the Lord never actually comes down to the earth. So the second coming and the rapture are two distinct events. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So, we believe in what's called the pre-tribulation rapture. That means that Christ will call us home prior to this horrific seven-year period that's going to uh, come upon the earth. People are just, you know, they're not interested in God, have rebelled for so many years that this is what he has to deal with. They choose the Antichrist over Jesus Christ. Why does this make the most sense? Because the marriage supper of the Lamb has to fit in somewhere. And Revelation gives us an order of the things that are going to take place in heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb, where all believers will get together, and there's this great feast, and it's just going to be an awesome time. And then the Lord comes with us, you know, out of that window of heaven, Revelation 19, back down to the earth to subdue the nations and establish his kingdom. Typology. Let me just tell you why this makes sense. Number one, typology. Whether it was Enoch or the flood of Noah, God never judged the righteous with the wicked. God's M.O., so to speak, is to always pull out the righteous before he has to judge the earth. Sodom and Gomorrah, same thing. There's only a few people, pull them out before I have to rain fire and brimstone on, that, on those cities. Israel out of Egypt, right? God never destroys the righteous with the wicked, so much so that in Matthew 13, the parable of the wheat and the tare, that when the tares, the weeds, were growing with the wheat, and they look similar, and they kind of maybe tangled together, The Lord says, don't rip up the tares, don't burn them in the fire, because you might pull up the good wheat with it. You don't want to harm the good with the bad. So God never, never judges the righteous with the wicked. 
The second thing, his MO or his modus operandi, so to speak. Why would God, why would the Lord judge his bride? Why would Jesus judge his bride? He wouldn't. We're the bride of Christ. So this would make no sense if we were other than a preacher of rapture. So the Lord Jesus dies for his bride, and then he beats her up, and then he has a meal with her in heaven. Can you say dysfunctional family? That's weird. <laughs> All right? It's just not going to happen. No matter how you look at it, it doesn't fit. Um, now, many, many say to me, Christians say to me, but Christians are being persecuted now. Don't confuse the persecution by Satan now, because we live in this world, with the judgment of God on the earth later. When you confuse those two, you can get confused and start saying things like that. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 basically says this, For God did not appoint us believers to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 3.10 Because you have kept my command to persevere, he's speaking to the church of Sardis, I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. But it's not for us. Mid-trivers, the problem with that is, is that um, in the middle of the seven-year period, the Lord comes for his church. Here's the problem for those of you that know your scripture well. You can't cross dispensations. So in other words, that last seven-year period of the tribulation is also the 70th year of Daniel which is specifically for the Jews. Go back to Daniel chapter 9, Old Testament book, and he says, for your people will be 70 weeks. 69 weeks passed, the Messiah was cut off. There was a gap. Again, all these books, Daniel, Ezekiel, uh, Zechariah, they're all Old Testament books. They all speak about the Messiah. And that's what the Jewish people should be learning today about the Messiah. It's so important that this is what should be occupying them, those scriptures, those Old Testament scriptures. So the last week, the last seven-year tribulation period, you can't have it if it's for the Jews, that the Christians are there three and a half years, then they get pulled up. You're crossing dispensations, which is a no-no in Bible hermeneutics. Cannot do it. And the last one, post-trib, which basically says that the Lord judges the earth with the Christians in it for seven years, comes back, the second coming, then comes back... He comes back to rapture them, goes back up to heaven, eats a quick meal, and then goes back down for the second coming. Can you say indigestion? All right. Also, the word rapture is used in Acts chapter 8 when Philip was ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Lord says, okay, i got other work for you to do in Azotus. He snatches him up, raptures him, and brings him to Azotus. So that word is used a few times. If we could just go to the last slide before we close, which is the difference between the rapture and the second coming. And then we'll close. Um, basically, with the rapture, we don't know when it could happen. Remember all those guys predicting the end of the world? Harold Camping, it was just a few years ago. Uh, it didn't happen, <laughs> because Jesus said, you're not going to know. So all these guys, the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Harold Campingites, you can't do it. All right? And it makes Christians look like a bunch of weirdos. We're not supposed to do it. All right? That's not what this is for. So the Lord could return at any moment in the rapture. In the second coming, it's following timed events three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. The earth is not judged in the rapture. Really no mention of the earth. But in the second coming, the earth is judged. Uh, the saints are called up to Christ in the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4. The saints come down following Christ, Revelation 19. The rapture is a mystery. 
The second coming is predicted and explained extensively in the Old Testament, in Joel, in Isaiah, in all these Old Testament books. Uh, the rapture is before the day of wrath. The second coming concludes the day of wrath. The rapture is no, re no reference to Satan. Second coming, Satan is bound. And that's in Revelation 20 that I read. In the rapture, the Lord comes for his bride. In the second coming, he comes with his bride. Rapture, the Lord comes in the air and remains in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4. Second coming, the Lord touches down to earth, Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14. Rapture, the Lord comes for believers only. Second coming, he comes to impact all people, especially the Jews. National, national mourning, repentance, and regathering into the, into the fold. Uh, rapture, only the Lord will see him. And the second coming, every eye will see him. It'll be obvious. Rapture, tribulation begins. Second coming, the millennial kingdom begins. And there's some scripture that we can put up too. I'll take a moment if you want to write some of it down. Or we could actually do a handout for you. One last thing before we close is that there's those timelines that I keep referring to. Um, they're over here if you want to on your way out. If you didn't get one, just pick it up and it'll make more sense. It's, it's a linear timeline. really helps us to understand what's going on. Let me leave you with this. The rapture is very important, but it's under attack. Let me start with the young adult movement that we've seen in the last five to ten years, and then let me make concentric circles and include everybody in it. When, when a false doctrine is put out, there's a reason for it. I call it desire-based theology. You put out, a, and America is good for it. You can turn on the TV and you've got ten different pastors, fifty different pastors saying fifty different things, and it's confusing. Think about the motive behind the false doctrine, desire-based theology. If I don't want persecution, I don't want sickness, I want to be wealthy, well, I'm going to gravitate towards the prosperity gospel because that's what I want, because I'm shallow and I don't want to change. So that's what I want. I don't want any problems. And it goes on and on and on. You know, if you, if you want to be your own God and have your own planet, then you can get into Mormonism because you can be your own God and have your own planet. When you die, you'll realize that that's not true. With uh, these young adults' movements recently, is there, the rapture is under attack. There is actually a book called The Rapture Under Attack. Now, here's the, here's the understanding behind it. You're young, you're a professional, you're going to raise a family. Don't worry about this rapture stuff. It doesn't exist. Go live your life, you know, tithe, serve the church. We, you know, young people are motivated. They've got energy. And we, we totally knock out the rapture from their lifestyles so that they can do what this movement wants them to do just amass and really just feed this machine. But this also affects us as well. Because if we understand, we're not supposed to set dates, not given any years for the, the end of the world, but there has to be a change in behavior and lifestyle based on this, what we understand, that the Lord could come back any time. I left the last two parables for the next Sunday that we come together to understand how Jesus gives us a mindset and how we're supposed to respond to knowing these things. Because we're, we can be very busy doing a lot of things, but we have to understand that at some point, even as believers, we're going to come face to face with the Lord. Are we ready? Are we making ourselves ready? There's an expression that says, when you see Christmas decorations, you know Thanksgiving is really close. Think about that. <laughs> very appropriate, the week before Thanksgiving. And you used to see some Christmas decorations, right? The rapture is Thanksgiving, but we don't know when it's going to be. The second coming is the Christmas decorations. 
we are supposed to see these things. We see that they increase in frequency and intensity. This is the third sermon where we've covered this. And what we see is that, that the signs are all there. So that means if the second coming is near, the rapture is even closer. Brothers and sisters, what are we doing to make ourselves ready? Jesus died for our sins. He loves us. He gave his life. He gave up the future of, of actually living an old age, even in the form of a man, to die on the cross so you and I could have life. I think sometimes in the church and in Western Christianity, we're so distracted, it's like pulling teeth to ask anybody to sacrifice a little bit of their time in their lives for the Lord Jesus. But the truth is, we collectively make up the bride. What do we look like? Do we have tattered clothing? Is our hair all messed up and chopped in different pieces? How do we look as, as the Lord's bride, as Western Christians? I just would encourage you to read the Word and pray, not because someone's telling you to, but because you want to. You want to get to know the one who saved you, that, that spiritually romantic thing that he did on the cross so that we could have life, be redeemed, be in heaven forever, and also live in a joyous and abundant life on the earth, regardless of all this stuff that's going on. Read the word, pray, ask him, what is it? Because what we may have to do is change and, and reprioritize our lives to fit in the Lord into our lives so that we can make ourselves more ready. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.